Come ye sinners lost and hopeless, Jesus' blood can make you free. For he saved the worst among you when he saved a wretch like me. To the faint he giveth power, through the mountains makes a way, findeth water in the desert, turns the night to golden day. And I know, yes I know, yes I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, yes I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. In temptation he is near thee, holds the powers of hell at bay, guides you to the path of safety, gives you grace for every day. He will keep thee while the ages roll throughout eternity. Though earth hinders and hell rages, all must work for good to thee. And I know, yes I know, yes I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, yes I know, yes I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes I know, yes I know, yes I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, and I know, yes, I know, yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Well, amen. Aren't you glad Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean? Well, take your Bible, turn over to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> Again, we began our series, our search and rescue series with our, of course, we had a month of our program and uh, just our spring, our spring campaign, and it was search and rescue as one for one was really the theme, and we began that series uh, kind of that went with that theme, and we talked about the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth in order to rescue lost mankind and we said that uh, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And, and then, of course, we pointed out that he's on the greatest manhunt in history. And its size, its scale is unprecedented. There's been never a search or rescue operation that's even compared to it. And then we pointed to that lifeline that we see out there. And we talked about how he throws it out there for people. Looking for those that have been taken captive, I should say, by Satan and sin, seeking to rescue them. We continued our series by noting David and his particular men who, when they had arrived in the city of Ziglag, they found that the city had been burned down and their families had been taken captive by the Amalekites. 
David and his men, of course, would go on to rescue the captive. And we learned a couple things from that account. We learned, number one, we need to master the art of war. Number two, he said, we need to practice the act of worship. And finally, we just need to stay on the attack. Well, this morning in our search and rescue series, as we close this out, we want to point out the need to rescue the wicked. Now, you understand where we're going with that in just a few moments. To rescue the wicked. I want you to, again, take your Bible, if you haven't already, look at Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. We're going to read through verse 16, chapter, 10, uh, chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, beginning in verse 10, we're going to read through verse 16. <clears throat> and, the <clears throat> excuse me, and the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, and, uh, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel, the brother of Enner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people." Father, we come to you, we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts, Lord, as we enter into this message this morning. Our desire is to hear from you. And we want to be inspired, Father, to be better believers, better Christians, and we also want, Father, those that have yet to receive and accept Jesus Christ to settle their soul's salvation before it is indeed eternally too late. We're asking you now, Lord, to bring conviction to our hearts and change to our lives, We'll thank you, we'll praise you, Lord. Now fill me with your spirit. And Father, may you help me to say only those things which would please you. May I truly be led by your Holy Ghost. Father, may you just anoint every listening ear that they would hear with spiritual ears even. We'll thank you and praise you for what you will accomplish. In Christ's name, amen. For 12 years, Sodom and Gomorrah had served King Chedorlaomer. In the 13th year, however, they rebelled. Well, Chedorlaomer, he gathers a few of his kingly friends and decides he's going to attack them. He's not happy about their rebellion, and so when it's all said and done, Chedorlaomer would attack and even spoil Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 11, you can look at that if you would. You're already there. It says, for they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, and they went their way, and they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. During the course of the battle, someone escapes the slaughter and informs Abram that his nephew Lot, as well as others, had been taken captive by these invaders. In 14, we see, and when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. May I just say, and that's not part of the message, but I do think it's important to note that Abraham trained those in his home. Boy, can I tell you, Dad, you better start training your children. Mom, you better start training your children. Why? Because there are battles that they will face that they need that kind of training. 
So a battle ensues, of course, and Abraham and his trained servants prevailed. In verse 16, the Bible says, And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Now, I want to jump forward 15 years. You say, what? Why would we jump forward 15 years? Why are we going to move from our passage forward? Because it's going to set the stage for the message. The Lord revealed his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the evil. Remember when there Abraham is on those planes and those angels show up and begin to tell him, hey, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that? Well, Abraham ultimately negotiates on behalf of the cities, doesn't he? He does his best to save them, to preserve them. Before the angel departs from the cities, uh, for the cities, Abraham had gotten a promise from the Lord to spare the cities if only ten righteous were found. Oh, and it started at 50, but it had gotten worked down to 10. Abraham was a tremendous negotiator. And now if you can find ten righteous, the Lord said, I'll not do anything to the city. I will spare the city and all the inhabitants. However, the next scene is that of the angels being taken into Lot's home for the night. Turn to Genesis chapter 19, would you please? Genesis chapter 19, verse 2. So we have jumped ahead 15 years now. Abram has delivered Lot and the people and their goods, and 15 years later, we're now looking at this same place, Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 19, verse 2, and he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. Boy, Lot couldn't see that happening. He knew kind of some things that would be taking place potentially or possibly. And in order to protect them, he would have the angels enter his home. But their evening would be interrupted by a mob of men and members of the community. Look at 19 verse 4 and 5 now. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about, uh, round, excuse me, house, around, house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. By the way, their request was not one of hospitality. They had no desire to hang out and get to know them in a friendly fashion. The phrase that we may know them implies an act of carnal knowledge. These intruders sought to violate these men. Now again, the passage states that not only did the men show up seeking to violate the angels, but notice it says both old and young, all the people from every quarter gathered at the house to view this spectacle. I think that's important to note. It wasn't just a few men that gathered. It was people from every quarter. They came. It wasn't just the men. It might have been the women. And there were children maybe even involved or at least teens. It appears that there was a group of people. They weren't all just men. And yet their intention wasn't to just, hey, come on out and fellowship with us. They wanted to harm these men, these angelic beings. This was a very wicked group of people. Their moral compass had been long broken, and it had led them to despicable acts. 
acts of aggression toward mankind and humanity. They had a total disregard for God. Boy, it may have been 15 years earlier that Abraham had rescued the people, but there can be little doubt that even then they were engaged in abominable behavior. I don't think we can say, well, in those 15 years, of course, from the time that Abram saved the people, from the time that he delivered them captive, that they were that wicked, horrible, they weren't wicked at that point. It was those 15 years later that they really got wicked. Uh Uh-uh. No. No, I don't believe that. I believe they were already engaged in abominable behavior at that point. And again, this was a very carnal, sinful, and sadistic group of people. So let me ask you a question. Why would Abraham rescue such a wicked group of people? Why would he do that? I mean, if Abraham had just let things take their course, then God may not have had to destroy it just 15 years later. I mean, if Abraham would have said, you know what, fine. You know what, those people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they deserve everything they've gotten. They're vile, wretched sinners. They're so horrible. They're so wicked. They're such God-haters. You know what? It's just as well. That's what happens to people that hate God. That's what happens to people that live in sin. That's how it goes down. The consequences are going to have to be be borne on their shoulders. They're getting what they deserve. I mean, why in the world would I place my family, my fortune, my future at risk for a bunch of sinful, wicked people that deserve everything they're getting? Abraham could have said that, could have thought that. He could have even responded in type. But I want you to remember for just a moment who was taken captive. It was personal. Look at Genesis chapter 12 for just a moment. Would you look at Genesis chapter 12 verse 1? Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now we're going back in time. This is often, we we go back to Genesis 12 because we see the call of Abram. And notice what goes on and what's said here in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will shew thee. Skip to verse 4, please. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Now Abraham's brother, Haran, had a son by the name of Lot. Haran would die, leaving Abraham to raise his son Lot. See, Abraham had invested in Lot. He had invested in him. I mean, Abraham, uh, Lot wasn't just a nephew, so to speak. He, He was considered a son, I would imagine. 
And remember, if, you're, if we remember properly, Abraham and Sarah did not have children, so I can only imagine that they were more than happy to say, well, my, my brother Haran has passed away. I'll take his son Lot as my own son and we'll raise him. Lot would live with and travel with Abraham. And as Lot grew older, he was given opportunity to prosper. I mean, again, Abraham had truly invested him. He taught him everything he knew. He had taken him under his wing. He had mentored him in life, and he had mentored him in business. Lot would go on to prosper and to possess his own fortune. Look in Genesis 13, 1. You say, where is this all going? Well, it's, we're getting there. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 now. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the south. So Lot's still with Abraham now. He's still with him. Notice verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. So there came a point in time where Lot, being personally trained by Abram, picked up on business and picked up on life, and he himself became a very prosperous man, so prosperous that the two of them could not dwell together. I mean, their servants were kind of going at it a little bit. There were issues that were taking place, and it just wasn't going to work anymore. This relationship, however strong it may have been, however wonderful it was, could not last quite the way it was. They had to part ways. There was going to have to be a, a separation of sorts. Not that, that, not that they wanted to end their relationship. They just couldn't live together like this anymore, or so it seemed. So we understand how things went, right? We remember the Bible. We know how at one point Lot looks over the plains and he says, wow, that looks good. And his, the businessman in him really just started raising up and getting excited and saying, boy, I could really prosper over there. And Abraham said, you know what, it's up to you. You go whichever direction you want. You'll go one way, I'll go the other, and then we'll make room for our families, room for our employees, room for our prosperity. And we know what direction Lot went. Why would Abraham rescue such a wicked group of people? Why would he place his family, his fortune, and future at risk for a bunch of sinful, wicked people that deserved everything they get? I'll tell you why. Because of Lot. See, Lot was Abraham's nephew and probably, as we said, more like a son to him than anything else. Do you know that there isn't one wicked person that isn't someone's child, cousin, 
nephew, grandchild, friend, or loved one. See, Lot made a bad choice, and it led to another bad choice, and then another bad choice, till finally he found himself controlled by compromise. His wife was found contaminated by conformity. His children corrupted by culture. And by the way, this didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. When Abraham got the news that Lot had been taken along with those people at Sodom, he said to himself, oh my, this is, this is Lot. This is like my son, my own flesh and blood. I don't care how wicked the city is, and I don't care how bad he may have gotten. I don't care what kind of mistakes he's made. He is like a son to me. I'm going to rescue him. Abraham rescued the wicked because one of them was his nephew, Lot. More like a son. So here's kind of the thought then. Again, so many have been deceived by Satan and taken captive by him. We, we would all agree with that, right? So here's the thought. How we view the wicked determines whether we will face the enemy, whether we will fight to get them back, and whether we will sacrifice to secure them for Jesus. Again, it's how we view the wicked that matters then. Abraham was willing to risk it all in order to rescue his nephew, his almost son in his mind. No matter how wicked Lot may have been, he still was a son to Abraham. He couldn't be so short-sighted to only see what they are. He had to remember who they are. You know, too many times you and I, we look at what they are and forget who they are. Can I tell you who they are? That sinner is someone's son. That delinquent is someone's daughter. That drunkard is someone's dad. That meth head is someone's mother. That wicked woman is someone's wife. That horrible man is someone's husband. That bad boy is someone's brother. That scandalous girl is someone's sister. That unethical man is someone's uncle. That atrocious woman is someone's aunt. That low-down person is someone's loved one. And that reprobate is someone's relative. That's who they are. And we look around us and we're tempted to discard the wicked and simply leave them to fend for themselves, to face the consequences of their sin on their own. Certainly, it shouldn't bother us. I mean, they're getting what they deserve. But remember, that sinner is someone's son or daughter, someone's mom or dad, husband or wife, brother or sister, aunt or uncle, or loved one and relative. It could be our loved one, our family member one day. You say, well, none of my family's there. It could be. And if so, we would pray to God that someone was giving their all to rescue them. Oh, God. Oh, God. Rescue my son. He is bound in vice and sin. Oh, God, rescue him. No matter 
how wicked a person may be, we can never forget that they are a precious soul in someone's eyes and that their future and well-being matters to someone. Can I tell you that they matter to God? He loved them so much that he died for them. The Bible even tells us in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Every time we look at the cross, it screams God's love. Yeah, there's a mom and a dad. There's a grandma or grandpa out there whose heart breaks to see their loved ones so bound by sin and vice, and yet they love them nonetheless and long to see them rescued. You know, there's just a simple thought, too, that can go along with this. I mean, we should probably put things in perspective. Rescue as many others as you possibly can, and who knows? God may send someone else to rescue yours. Our campaign this spring was entitled Search and Rescue as One for One. Abraham, why in the world would you risk your family? Why would you risk your fortune? Why would you risk your future to rescue a bunch of no good sinners? Because my son lost it. I don't want him to perish. I don't care how wicked he's gotten, he's still all mine. I don't necessarily agree with his lifestyle. I don't necessarily agree with what he's doing, but what I can't agree on is that I love him. When the Lady Elgin departed from Chicago's LaSalle Street dock around 11 p.m. on September the 7th, 1860, it was the start of just a, a routine trip up the coast of Lake Michigan with its first stop supposed to be in Milwaukee the next day. Well, it never arrived. The Lady Elgin was a sidewheel steamboat built in 1851, and it served as a cargo and passenger ship in the Great Lakes. It was a foggy, stormy night on that choppy sea in Lake Michigan. But there was nothing for the 398 people on board to be overly concerned about until about 2.20 a.m. that morning. The Augusta, a schooner on its way to Chicago, it was headed right toward the Lady Elgin. Just a few minutes later, the Augusta struck the Lady Elgin in its side. It, it was almost at a, a perfect perpendicular 90-degree angle. That tiny Augusta, it sustained some pretty significant damage, and it started to leak real heavy, but it arrived in the Windy City just a few hours later in the early morning with its crew intact. However, the fate of the Lady Elgin was not so good. By the time the Augusta docked, the Lady Elgin was underwater, and its passengers, those who were still alive, were fighting for their lives, hoping for a miracle to bring them to the close, yet so far north shore. When the ship 
with the ship taking on more water, the wind and the waves pounding the ship, people started jumping overboard into the icy waters. Some were swept away. Others held on to debris or tried to make certain kind of rafts out of the debris. And a lifeboat was sent out. And those who stayed on the ship, they, they kind of retreated up to the top point, the very top deck, which ultimately splintered into multiple rafts. Early after dawn, broke the lifeboat, <laughs> finally made it to shore. And the news of the disaster spread quickly. People all across the North Shore made their way to Winnica, I think that's how you pronounce it, in hopes to help those that were still alive in the water. Edward Spencer, he was one with, he was, he, he was with some friends that early morning and they received the news. When they heard the news of this horrible situation, they immediately bolted north to Winnica. Spencer was in his mid-twenties at the time. He was a student at Garrett Biblical Institute. And although Spencer was a good swimmer and diver, he was described by his brother and others that knew him as being frail. For those lucky enough to survive through the night and to get close, close enough to lay their eyes upon the coastline, their journey wasn't over, though. With violent breaking waves and an evening uh, and and and. and just, I mean, forceful recoil of waves. The final stretch demanded like almost Herculean type effort to get to shore. But unfortunately, these people had spent hours already trying to just stay alive. Rescuers like Spencer were tasked with swimming through the breakers to survivors and help bring them to safety. That wasn't easy. It's interesting because what they did was they tied ropes to themselves and people would hold the ropes as they swam out into the, 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 the icy waters and there they would try to reach out to people that had drifted close enough. And then they'd pull them in if they could. While in the midst of one of those rescues, a piece of wreckage smacked Spencer in the face and he began to bleed. And the, person that was, the persons that were holding his particular rope started to drag him back in. And he waved to him, don't, I'm fine, I'm fine. They continued to pull him in and he took the rope off. And he reached the survivor and he brought him back to land. When he got back on shore, he spotted a local doctor there that was on shore, a fellow by the name of Henry Bannister, and he asked him to, to man the rope, and Bannister said he would. Between rescues, Spencer, he would sit near a fire. He would drink some things just to kind of rebuild his energy, and by the time he had rescued his 15th survivor, he was fatigued beyond belief. But when he saw John Eviston struggling to keep his Ellen alive, he made one last plunge into the icy waters. He dashed into the waves once, then twice, and then again. He was washed back by huge waves. The Chicago Tribune on September the 10th, 1860, went on to say he followed a 
retreating roller as it passed the two on the frail structure, the man with his burden in his arms leaping into the water and made laboriously toward his rescuer. Not a second too soon. An angry roller was at his back. If it reached him, he was lost. The rescuer toiled nobly. They neared one another, and just as the outstretched hands met, all was lost in a mighty submerging wave. The wave retreated, and a cheer ran along the shore that they were saved. Saving of two people at once was the grand finale for Spencer's supreme feat of strength and heroism that Saturday morning. His brother William, also a Garrett student, brought his brother so exhausted that he was somewhat delirious back to his room. Trip after trip, one after another, Over and over again, he made his way into the icy waters to rescue the parachute. That disaster is the worst incident to happen on an open waters on open waters in the Great Lakes. One of the uh, one of one of the uh, um, uh, of the approximately 398 that were on the Lady Elgin that night, less than a hundred survived. Newspapers across the world and the country featured the tragedy of the Lake Elgin, and Edward Spencer's name was included in the copy. However, that particular day impacted the rest of Spencer's life, and he never fully recovered physically. Still weakened from his efforts, he soon dropped out of school, and he returned home. He later moved to California, and he lived on a farm. He never graduated. He never became a minister. He did marry and have children. Stories said that he lived the rest of his life as a semi-invalid. Before his death in 1917, a reporter interviewed Spencer. And according to Lost on the Lady Elgin, a book, a fellow by the name of Fawes, F-A-H-A, asked if Spencer regretted his decision on September the 8th, 1860, since his body was never the same after. Spencer said, If I had to do it again, I should wish to do on that occasion just what I did. Can you imagine of the almost 100 survivors, he alone had rescued 17. Why did you put your future at risk? Why did you put your physical body at risk? Why did you make such a sacrifice? I just couldn't bear to watch them all perish. Matter of fact, Spencer would go on to continually question whether or not he really gave it his very best. Matter of fact, he wrote a track about it. I wonder today if it was your son, your daughter, It was your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your dad. What wouldn't you be willing to give to rescue them? 
You know, the thing that we need to remember is that every single sinner, every wicked person is someone's son or daughter. Every single one of them. Every single one of them is someone's mom or dad. Someone's aunt or uncle. Someone's grandma or grandpa. This last month, we've been addressing our search and rescue, our campaign. We've been making our way out into the highways and hedges, and we've been seeking to rescue the perishing. We talked about Jesus Christ and how he throws out a lifeline to those that are sinking in sin. They need only reach out and grab it. But see, this is the thing. Jesus Christ hasn't been on earth in over 2,000, about 2,000 years now. Do you know how this gets into the hands of people today? When we recognize them as sons and daughters, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, when we see them as more than just wicked people, we recognize that they're somebody's child. And our heart breaks because we know if it was ours, we would want someone to be willing to pay the ultimate price to save them. And so today, you and I are responsible to throw out the lifeline. That's our job. It's our responsibility. Abraham, why in the world would you waste your time on that wicked city and those people that deserve to go down to hell? They're so vile. They're so wretched. They're so wicked. Because when I look at them, I see myself. Because my own son, nephew, flesh and blood is there. And boy, when we look at humanity and the state that they are in today, our heart, instead of being cold, ought to be broken and just soft. And we ought to be, it ought to be broken. We ought to cry out to God, oh God, somebody needs to do something. I can't do everything, Lord, but if you'll let me, I'll do what I can. I'll take that lifeline. I'll take the word of God. I'll take the truth of the word of God and I will share Jesus Christ, the crucified. I'll share Jesus Christ, the risen, with a world that's lost and dying and going to hell. I don't want them to perish because that could be my son. That could be my daughter. That could be my mom. That could be my dad. I want them all to be saved. Rescue them, God. I'll be part of the rescue team. And I'll tell you, as we move forward, Community Baptist Temple, the month may be over and the campaign is on an end. But can I tell you that the work is never done, that there are always those that are perishing. There are always those that need saving. And may I say, we got to keep throwing out the lifeline because Jesus Christ is still the only way, the truth, and the life. I wondered, have you ever grabbed hold of the lifeline, the Lord Jesus. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The only way that you and I can possibly pay for our sin is to spend an eternity separated from God. Not only do we die physically, but we die spiritually. 
You say, how do you know that? In Revelation 20, verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Not only do we die once physically, but we'll die a second time to be forever separated from God. All because of our sin. And by the way, we were born in that sin. It's not like you have to be a bad person. We're already corrupted. We're already infected with sin from the very moment of conception. From the moment the Bible says... In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. I never had to teach my children to do wrong. I spent a lifetime trying to teach them to do right. Because see, the nature of mankind is to sin. See, a sinner is not what I do, it's who I am. It's not what I become, it's what I am. And that's true with all of us today. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came to earth. He didn't just come to earth to be an example of how we ought to live our lives, although we should follow his example. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come just so that we as churches could debate on whether or not he's truly the son of God or Emmanuel God with us he came to seek and to save that which was lost this morning I want to tell you that the lifeline's out there this morning you simply need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ you simply need to take hold of him it says in Revelation as we close today, he says, chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, speaking to the Lord Jesus, hears these words from Jesus. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Nicodemus says, what do you mean? You mean I got to climb back into mama's tummy and be born again? He says, no. No. That which is of the spirit is spirit. That which is of the flesh is flesh. You have to be born not only physically, of which you've already been, you need to be born spiritually. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you ever want to reach heaven, you have to go through me. Nicodemus finally figured it out. And I trust that you've figured it out already. But if you haven't, the lifeline awaits you. Jesus holds his arms open, and he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Don't continue to bear the burden of your sin. Don't continue to bear the guilt of it all. Cast away the burden. Cast away the shame. Cast away the guilt and leave it on his shoulders. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ and bow and humbly ask him to forgive you and save you, admitting that you're the sinner that he came for and that he died on behalf of. Today, believers, for we see the wicked the way Jesus does. 
They're somebody's son and daughter. Mom and dad, aunt and uncle, grandma, grandpa, neighbor, friend, family member, acquaintance. They're somebody. They mean something to somebody. They ought to mean something to us because they mean so much to him. Make a decision to throw out the lifeline at work, at school, the grocery store, the gas pump, just everywhere you go, at the family gathering even, throw out the lifeline because someone's perishing and they need Jesus. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you just bless us today. We thank you for this time we've had together. And again, Lord, we are a needy people today. And we want to thank you, Father, for just the privilege and the opportunity that we have to be a part of your family. Lord, there may be those that have yet to become part of the family of God. They have yet to accept and receive Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask, Lord, that you would just bring conviction in their life. May they recognize themselves as the sinners they are. For, Father, you've said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes every one of us. Every last one of us are in the same boat. None of us measure up to your Son who's perfect and sinless. Help us, Father, realize that we must deal with our sin. And today, may we realize that you're the only way, the truth, and the life. Today, maybe in this room, you don't know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. You've never settled your soul's salvation. I'm not saying you don't believe in God. I'm not saying that you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm saying there's never been a time, a place in your life when you settled your soul's salvation, when you acknowledged yourself as the sinner, the Bible says that we all are, and that you will perish and go to hell without Jesus Christ. And at some point you said, Lord Jesus, I know I need you. Come into my life. You're the one that can save me. Only you can do that. And I want to be a part of your family and I want to go to heaven. If you've never taken steps to settle your soul's salvation, this would be a great time to do it. In this crowd, would there be somebody that would say, Preacher, I don't know. I can't honestly say that I've settled that. I've never, I've never dealt with that the way we're talking about. I, I believe in God maybe, but I just have never made it that personal. I've never understood that Jesus Christ is indeed the only one that can save me and forgive me. I thought I could be good enough. I thought my good could outweigh the bad, but I realize now I could never be good enough. I have to have Jesus. Preacher, pray for me. With an uplifted hand, would you lift your hand up? Let me, let me pray for you. I won't call your name. I won't come down to you. I just want to pray with you. I want to pray for you right now. Anybody, please, let me do that for you. You say, ah, that's a bold thing. Yeah, it's a bold thing. I'm asking you to, to admit something. I'm asking you to say, yes, I need Jesus Christ. I want you to pray for me because I know that I have to have him in my life. And I may not be ready to do that today, but I need you to pray because I do need to do it. Anybody like that? Will you let me, will you let me pray for you? You're a child of God today. Let me ask you a question. Maybe, maybe you just raised your hand. If you didn't, I might not have seen it. In just a moment, I'll give you a chance to respond, okay? And I'm going to pray anyway because i got a feeling somebody might have wanted to raise their hand or they raised it and I didn't see it. But you're a child of God. What about you? Are you throwing out the lifeline? You got a good attitude toward the wicked or do you find yourself almost wishing hell on them? Oh, we can get there, can't we? Especially if they've hurt or harmed one of us or if they've done something that's despicable in our eyes. But hold on, there's somebody's son or daughter. There's somebody matters. They matter to somebody. And they matter to God first and foremost. They ought to matter to us. I'm not saying we agree with them. I'm not saying we have to endorse their lifestyles. I'm not saying we have to do anything like that. I'm just saying we ought to be trying to reach them for Jesus' sake. 
Father, in this crowd today, there may have been those that raised a hand. I might not have seen it, and I just pray, dear God, that if you did give them courage to raise their hand, I'm asking you to give them now the courage to, to step out by faith and allow you to, to change their life forever by trusting your son, Jesus. Oh, Father, they need you today. They need your son, Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage to do so, the boldness to do that. Lord, to not care what anyone else thinks, but to just care what you think and to get things right with you and them. Father, please be with the believer today as well and help us, Father, to make a decision to start throwing out the lifeline, to realize that the wicked are somebody's, that they matter to somebody and that they ought to matter to us because they matter to you so much. We'll thank you, we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand.